KYW Original Podcasts. This is KYW In-Depth. I'm Charlotte Reese. The U.S. Supreme Court unanimously ruled on a case about the Electoral College this week, just four months ahead of a presidential election. The decision affects something that's come up a couple of times in recent elections, including in 2016, faithless electors. So why is this change being addressed now by the Supreme Court? What's the significance of the ruling? And why do we have an electoral college in the first place? I reached out to Tuan Samahan to ask him these questions. I'm Tuan Samahan. I'm a professor of law at Villanova University's Charles Widger School of Law. I teach constitutional law, federal courts, and civil procedure. To start this podcast, can we just break down the Electoral College a little bit? What was the very first Electoral College like, and how did it get started? And kind of what has it changed to from the beginning to now, but let's say before the recent Supreme Court ruling? Sure. Well, to take us right to the very start, which um, takes us not very far, actually, because it all goes back to Philadelphia and the Philadelphia Convention. The Electoral College was a product of an 11th hour compromise at the Philadelphia Convention. There had been quite a bit of disagreement about how we were going to select the president of the United States. And one thing that becomes evident as one uh, learns more about the founding is that um, although we often tout ourselves as a a democracy, uh, there was a fair amount of distrust of uh, the mob and uh, of people. Uh, And, uh, you know, a a view, too, that, that certain people were less capable of governing themselves. And, and so in the U.S. constitutional order, we take into account different classes of persons, right? So we have a House of Commons, the United States House of Representatives, which is closest to the people directly elected uh, every two years. The U.S. Senate is, is more the plutocratic uh, body, uh, the, uh, the, the wealthy or, you know, upper class, and uh, and that was the House of Lords, if you will, the U.S. Senate, and that was selected by, um, you know, originally the state legislatures. It was not directly elected. And similarly, the uh, presidency, uh, and, and still is to this day, was selected indirectly, not directly by the people, but um, instead the compromise, which is a, a very a small, thin uh, compromise, as the Supreme Court calls it, is in Article 2 that describes how uh, the states have the power, specifically the state legislatures, have the power to select uh, electors, and they can choose all sorts of criteria as to how they choose these electors, and these electors, in turn, choose the President of the United States. And so you get this from the very start, this, this idea that uh, we're not going to directly elect the president. Well, uh, so this 11th hour compromise uh, very quickly falls apart um, in the sense after it's ratified. Uh, there were expressions in the Federalist Papers, which are the popular essays that were, were written by John Jay, Alexander Hamilton, in James Madison to encourage people to ratify the document. They talked about this notion that these electors were going to be this sort of deliberative body. And so this, there's this idea that, that goes along with democracy, which is sort of uh, called republicanism. It's the idea that we're going to have deliberation and refinement of the popular view and enlargement of, 
of narrow parochial interests into what would be the broader interest, the common good. And so the uh, Republican, small r Republican component of this is is that we're going to choose wise people who will will help refine popular sentiment and choose you know fit characters who will elect our president. So at the beginning, that was the idea that these individuals were going to be vested with a certain measure of discretion. Uh, that was at least what was sort of expected by by Jay and Hamilton, who wrote on this. But uh, the people weren't going to have it. You know, there was uh, early uh, uh, recognition that there was going to be partisanship. There's going to be political parties. There's going to be division. Right. So this was not really anticipated. This level of faction. And we see this present itself very quickly in the elections of 1796 and 1800, because in both of these elections, uh, the wheels kind of come off the wagon. And so in 1796, we have, uh, we have people voting strategically in the Electoral College, and we end up with uh, two uh, rivals, political rivals, uh, John Adams, you know, the leader of the Federalist Party, uh, assuming uh, the presidency. And then as, as his vice president, uh, we end up getting uh, Jefferson. And so this, this idea that you're going to have this political cohabitation of Federalist president with a Democratic Republican vice president, this would be a little bit like uh, Americans deciding that they were going to vote for uh, Joe Biden for president, but then we were going to have Mike Pence as, as vice president. So, so immediately we, we begin to see that there there's this problem that's going to arise, and then it gets worse in the election of 1800. We end up with a, a deadlock in the electoral college, where uh, we have a tie vote. Um, and the whole thing gets and uh, ends up going to the House of Representatives for for resolution. So you know we have uh, Jefferson and Burr, and, and of course Lin Manuel Miranda has uh, made us all more familiar with how that ends up. Uh, you know Alexander Hamilton uh, helps break the uh, the deadlock, political deadlock in the House. Uh, you know I don't know it was like the thirty sixth round. Of, of voting in the House, and then uh, Jefferson is elected president. And so this precipitates an amendment, 1804. We finally ratify the 12th Amendment, which recognizes the political partisanship. And so henceforth, we're going to have separate electoral college votes for the presidency and the vice presidency, which is a big nod to this partisanship and that people really want to run the show. And so... Um, and, and you know what? We figure out early on that these electors, that who we who we maybe suppose are going to vote for the candidate that uh, has the popular uh, vote in, in their particular state, you know, they become faithless. And so we have the case in 1796 of Samuel Miles, someone who was the you know the, the first faithless elector, had pledged to John Adams, but then he was a turncoat. He uh, he voted for Jefferson. So uh, all that dissatisfaction ends up in a revision of the system. Now, we, we have an earlier spat of uh, populism in America, and we decide basically by 1832, we really don't want these people to be deliberative uh, and independent. We want them to do what we tell them to do. We want them to be agents. We don't want them to be independent and, and have discretion. Uh, and so by 18. 
32, even though the states constitutionally are free to select their electors however they would like to select their electors, uh, all the states decide that uh, they're going to uh, adopt some form of popular uh, vote within their state. So the top vote getter of the popular vote in the state will get that state's electoral college votes, which remains to this day with with two minor exceptions, Maine and Nebraska, uh, who uh, allocate uh, those states allocate the electoral college votes a little bit differently. But generally still, it is a popular vote. Right. So so then what does this Supreme Court ruling then this week, how much does that affect um, how the Electoral College works? What kind of happened and why is it important or is it even important? Right. Well, so uh, as I mentioned, you know, many states uh, uh, have uh, adopted this uh, model of, of requiring electors to offer some kind of guarantee or pledge that they are going to actually vote for the people uh, who they were elected to vote for. Um, and, and so some 30-plus states have these pledge laws on the books. Uh, you know, when you and I go into the voting booth, we'll only see the names Donald Trump and Joe Biden. And you think that you're voting for Donald Trump or Joe Biden, but you're actually a voting for the electors who are going to then in turn cast votes, presumably for Donald Trump or Joe Biden. Um, but behind the scenes, what you're voting for are these electors. And so some 32 states, they have these pledge laws on the books that require the electors to vote as pledged. And in the event that the electors fail to honor their, their, their oaths, their, their pledges, there are, in some states, sanctions. And so some 15 states have uh, sanctions on the books, such as the state of Washington. And Washington requires that, that you vote as anticipated or else face a fine of $1,000 at, at this time. That law has since, since been uh, superseded. You know, this is about 15 states or so that have these sanctions. Uh, more than half of these 15 states are Western states. And these Western states, you know, a little bit more populist. Uh, these states also have strong traditions of direct democracy. They would find these individuals. And so three electors in Washington state, they go rogue. And they uh, decide to be faithless electors. The theory is Washington is a safe state for Hillary Clinton. And by the time you get to the Pacific Coast, you kind of know, uh, you know, um, how the elections turned out. And, of course, they're casting their votes at some later date anyway, based on the popular return from their particular state. And so they have this idea, maybe if we cast our votes for, for someone else, we'll persuade others to signal to them that maybe they should also support an independent choice, someone other than, than Trump and Clinton. And, of course, that doesn't work out, but the electors are fined, right? And so they're challenging their fines in the Washington case. And uh, similarly, uh, in Colorado, there was a faithless uh, voter, Baca, uh, and uh, similarly challenging this. Washington state, the state courts have, had upheld the fine. The challenge to the uh, pledge 
and sanction law in Colorado resulted in a different outcome with the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit saying that, uh, in fact, you, you get some discretion as an elector and you don't have to just be the agent of the people. You could be this independent judge of sort of who's best before you cast this vote. So that, that teed up what we call a split between these two courts. And so it goes up to the Supreme Court. It's very important for the Supreme Court to resolve this, especially in an election year ahead of time. Right. So this whole Supreme Court ruling then kind of started with the 2016 few rogue votes that happened. That's right. That's right. And, and, you know, we should be clear that this faithless elector phenomenon is exceedingly rare. It's less than 1% of all electoral college votes cast. And there was one election in particular in the late 1800s where, you know, most of the faithless votes uh, were cast. And that was because a candidate died before the electors had cast their votes. And so there was, well, who'd we vote for? We were pledged for someone who's dead. Wow. So do you think that this ruling, this Supreme Court decision could have an impact on the 2020 election or elections after this one? Well, so what the Supreme Court ended up saying uh, was that the Constitution decides a lot less than we think it does. It leaves a lot up to politics. To sum it up, it's, it's less Constitution, more politics. States have choices as to how they structure the granting of electoral college votes. And and so what this does do, I think, is puts some wind in the sails of the national popular vote compact movement. You know, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote in 2016, and the national popular vote movement had previously responded to this idea of having electoral college vote winners um, be sort of consistent with the national popular vote. You know, right now, states say we're going to give our electoral college votes to whomever gets the highest number of votes within our state. Well, so a legislature could peg the grant of its electoral college votes if it wanted to, to whomever got the highest number of votes uh, nationwide. So that's uh, what the national popular vote movement is about. The national popular vote compact, which is a proposal out there to get the states to effectively agree to commit that their electoral college votes will go to the top nationwide popular vote getter. And States have entered into this compact with the idea that if 270 electoral college votes worth of states sign on to this, this this thing is going to become uh, active. And because it becomes active, you know, we will have effectively then moved to a national popular vote. So that is an option that is available and and out there. And, And that is made much more clear now by this Decision. This decision says, look, hey, there's no problem obliging these individuals to, to vote the way that voters anticipate. Uh, again, it is a little bit sneaky. You go into the booth and you cast a vote for Joe Biden. You're actually casting votes for Joe Biden's electors. And so um, the, the Supreme Court says, look, you know, we're, 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 we think there's enough discretion in Article 2 
that is uh, left up to the state legislatures, they can do what they want. And so the state legislatures decide that they want to have sanctions that are attached to these pledges or even some kind of provision that says, look, if you vote for anyone other than the anticipated candidate, you are automatically removed and replaced by someone else who will vote as pledged. States can do that. Now, this might be problematic from the original text. You could say, look, you know, it talks about the word electors. It talks about the word ballot. It uses the word vote. Sounds like these individuals in the Electoral College are not supposed to be just agents or automatons just executing someone else's order, that they actually have some discretion. But the Supreme Court says, look, we've got over 200 years of experience of how we've understood these words. And the way we've understood these words is that, uh, you know, we're going to have effectively direct democracy, even if in an indirect sort of way. Right. And, you know, as you mentioned, there's always a lot of grumbling about the Electoral College, right? Every time a candidate wins the popular vote but loses the election. Uh, Can you maybe break down why that is and maybe talk about both sides, like why there's arguments for people defending the Electoral College or arguing against it? Right. So, you know, there's a long running debate between uh, a lawyer named Tara Ross and a scholar named John Koza on what the effects would be of the National Popular Vote Compact. And I think the uh, concern Tara Ross has raised is this idea that uh, if you abolish the, if you effectively abolish the Electoral College through this compact, you're going to see presidents only campaigning in big urban areas because those are the population centers. And that, uh, therefore, the rural states uh, would be ignored. Uh, So areas that are not heavily populated would be ignored. And so that would uh, uh, play to a political base that Tara Ross doesn't like. Uh, And so the idea is that, you know, if you're a conservative and a Republican, you ought to oppose the effort to abolish effectively the Electoral College through the national popular vote. John Koza, on the other hand, says, look, that's not true. So first of all, if you look at the population centers of the United States and you were to like add up like all of the major urban areas, you know, we're talking about 15% of the vote total. And so really, you would have to campaign to the suburbs and you're going to have to go where the votes are. And and he points out that, look, right now you've got huge states that are completely ignored because they're considered safe for one party or another. And you only have a handful of battleground states that get all the love and attention from these uh, candidates. So, you know, Ohio, for example, is deluged with all kinds of presidential candidate blandishments, whereas a state like um, California or Texas is ignored because, you know, those states are usually typically not in play. So it's it's unclear to me how to predict how this would go down the future. I think COSA has some fairly compelling empirical evidence that the world wouldn't end uh, if we would go in the direction of not national popular vote. 
You know, there are other options, though, and that's sort of the beautiful thing about what the Supreme Court has done in these cases. And I should note here that uh, the Supreme Court was unanimous in its outcome, right? So you didn't have any of the justices saying, oh, no, uh, this is what's required by the Constitution, and we've been mistaken for over 200 years. You didn't have that. And uh, in the uh, Baca case, it was similarly, um, that case was 8-zip, Justice Sotomayor was recused in that one. But again, you had Sonia Sotomayor agreeing with Justice Thomas as to the basic uh, bottom line in Chiafalo. So a broad consensus. So other options might be, look, maybe, maybe we're worried about the fact that national popular votes now can get cast months and months uh, earlier. So uh, widespread availability of early voting now means that we might miss important key last-minute disclosures that are made by a candidate. So let's let's assume let's imagine the October surprise, right? This is where sort of an opponent uh, sandbags some piece of of uh, really negative information they have about the opponent, and they release it a, a couple weeks before the November election on the theory that this does not give the political opponent enough time to sort of spin the news cycle and and this is going to stay front and center for voters as they go into that uh, you know election Tuesday and so you know whatever it is whether it's the sort of uh, sexual harassment uh, tapes uh, you know considering uh, uh, concerning uh, you know Trump or maybe something about Tara Reid and Joe Biden or, or, or maybe you know someone produces a Ku Klux Klan membership card for one of the presidential candidates or you know bribes from China for one of the candidates, you, whatever you imagine it, that's too late uh, for all those people who cast those early votes to go back and revise uh, based on new information that's come out. And so the original electoral college, or I should say the expectations about the original electoral college, would allow these sort of refined adults who are going to roughly take the consensus of the people to cast their votes uh, some other way than the way people might have committed earlier without the benefit of, of this information that was late breaking. And so you could have the Electoral College as sort of an emergency break on American democracy if it turns out that someone was elected who is clearly unfit for office based on information that sort of became clearest very late in the election. And so you could have a safety valve kind of mechanism there that, that would allow the people in the Electoral College to sort of save democracy from itself. Mm. That's an interesting point. And obviously that's going to be a huge factor in this election with early voting and a lot of mail-in voting considering the pandemic. Right, right. Uh, you might have an instance, too, where a lot of people aren't able to get out to vote, perhaps because of uh, reinstated quarantines related to pandemics. And so to the extent that we're locked into a popular vote, but the popular vote might not reflect the popular sentiment. Remember, we need to consider things like uh, felon voter uh, disenfranchisement laws. We need to consider voter suppression efforts. Uh, we need to consider, you know, on the flip side, you know, maybe you have uh, concerns about unauthorized voting. 
uh, you know, persons who aren't eligible to vote. And so there are all sorts of reasons to believe that, that maybe the popular vote doesn't necessarily represent the, the vote of the people. And just as a last question, if, if you can, what do you think the future of the Electoral College will be? Do you think that anything could, you know, kind of change again after this ruling? Right. Well, so I, I think this, like I said, puts wind in the sails of the national popular vote movement. It makes clear that states really can make their electors commit to a particular candidate so that uh, they don't vote in surprising and unanticipated ways. And we saw with the 17th Amendment that long before the 17th Amendment required direct election of U.S. Senators, it first required, uh, it first informally, through something called the Oregon Plan, uh, re- effectively required direct election of U.S. Senators. So we saw decades before 1913, states like Oregon begin to say, hey, look, we know that it's, it's the prerogative of the state legislature to elect U.S. Senators, not the people. But we're a populist state uh, out um, on the West, and we believe in direct democracy. We are going to commit as state legislators to vote for the popular vote-getter for the U.S. Senate race in our state. And so this commitment, which was not legally obligated, uh, started pretty early and uh, you know a good deal earlier than the uh, 1913 ratification of the 17th Amendment. And so it made it so that the 17th Amendment was basically just a formalistic uh, act of something that ha- was already uh, a fait accompli. Uh, it was already established we were going to elect directly. And so amending the Constitution didn't seem like a big deal. So I think the, what's going to happen is people are going to support the national popular vote uh, commitment. We'll get states worth 270 electoral colleges uh, votes that are uh, you know, committed to this, and we will effectively then have a national popular vote. And people will see the world doesn't end when that happens. We then have an alignment between what the electoral college is doing and what the national popular vote is doing. And then at some point in the future, then, someone will propose a 28th Amendment, which will abolish the Electoral College, at which point in time no one will think twice about it because we've already been following the national popular vote anyway. All very interesting and exciting for some people. Thank you so much for joining me and talking to me about this topic today. Yes, thanks for having me, Charlotte. That's it for this episode of KYW In-Depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the Radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Charlotte Reese, and we'll have another episode out soon.